Shimon, my aunt's father-in-law, pulled me outside, outside the house, outside the fence of their home. And he said, come here. And in very broken Arabic, because he thought I don't understand English, I mean Assyrian, and I didn't much. And he said, do you see this fence of this house? And I said, yes. He said, inside that fence is Assyria. Hello, friends. Shlam alochon, b'nei umti mochabeb. Peter Ibrahim here with episode 146. And boy, has it been a long time since I've been with you all. And believe me, I've missed you all. We hope that you had a chance to catch up on some of the previous episodes you may have missed along the way and are ready for today's episode with Firas Jetu. You know, thanks to Zinda Magazine, I knew of Firas for several years before meeting him in person. He was a recurring contributor to the magazine, and I spent much of my teenage and early adult years reading and rummaging through Zinda as a way to connect to Assyrian activists across the globe. Admittingly, I still access the Zinda archives from time to time. Later on in life, I would see Faraz at community events such as the Assyrian Convention or lectures here and there. But thanks to this podcast, I was able to reconnect with Firas. What was originally planned for a brief sit-down turned into spending half of the day and lunch with Firas and his beautiful family. Some of the impactful takeaways from our conversation was my realization of the rapid decline of our Assyrian intelligentsia, the difference and hindrance between the doers and sidelined individuals in our nation. Firas also made it clear that we need to all stop working as individuals and strengthen our institutions so that they can stay operating and sustainable for the years to come. And finally, how he wants to leave an impactful legacy for his family and community. And I didn't sense it was a materialistic impact, but more so about leaving a legacy for your nation, not just in the diaspora, but most importantly for those in our indigenous lands, our people. Firas Fozi Jetu was born in Baghdad, Iraq, leaving Iraq as a teenager and eventually immigrating to Toronto, Canada, and later on to the United States. Firas has been active in Assyrian affairs for over 30 years and credits Malfono Ninos Aho and Rabbi Alfred Duman for igniting his passion for Assyrians. Some of his accomplishments include publishing the first Assyrian website in 1993, Assyria Online, and he was one of the co-founders of the Assyrian International News Agency, also known as Aina, and most notably, was an early investor in the Assyrian heartland of the Ninwe Plains, Deshtet Ninwe. Firas currently lives in Los Gatos, California, and is married to Susan Nissan. Susan and Firas are the proud parents to an 11-year-old boy, Tayshin. Firas holds a master's degree in electrical and computer engineering. He is currently on the executive staff serving as the senior vice president and the general manager of OnSemi, a publicly held multi-billion dollar technology company. He also holds multiple patents in the technology and engineering field. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by my favorite attorney, Tony Caligarakis and the injury lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. 
Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. This episode is also sponsored by the Oshana Partners, a husband and wife real estate team. Are you considering purchasing or selling a home in Arizona or California? John and Rita are available to help make your next real estate decision into a seamless transaction. Contact the Oshanas at 209-968-9519. Get to know them a bit more by checking out their website, theoshanapartners.com. That's T-H-E-O-U-S-H-A-N-A-P-A-R-T-N-E-R-S.com. The Oshana Partners. And now, let's listen to Firaz Jettu. Firas, welcome to the Assyrian Podcast. It is a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure and honor uh, to be among all the fo- folks that uh, you've uh, interviewed in the past. It's uh, great to be in that company. I'm going to start off with my usual question. In one sentence, how would you describe Firas Jettu? Wow, that's a tough question to start off with. Uh, I'm an Assyrian um, nationalist. Uh, I know that's uh, not a popular word these days in, the, in academia, but I love my people and uh, uh, I want to leave a uh, heritage uh, uh, that improves our state for the next generation. It's a mouthful. That's not more than a sentence, yeah. but I'm sorry. <laughs> You're not the first. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I want to ask you, what is your earliest memory? Earliest memory? Um, I would say it's in Baghdad where I was born. It would be during Nusardil, going to uh, an area called Garaj Amana, where there are a lot of Assyrians that live there, where regardless where you come from, what your background, your religion, you're going to be wet. And uh, just walking through to the shops with my mother soaking wet and continuing to have buckets of water from the apartment buildings uh, in that area uh, dumped on us. So you were born in Baghdad. Tell me about your upbringing in Baghdad. How was that like? Sure. Um, Born to uh, kind of very diverse uh, parents. My uh, uh, mother is a Muslawi Iraqi. uh, Her father is from the Chaldean Church. Her mother is from the Syrian Catholic Church. Uh, My father uh, comes from Nuhadra, Duhok. Uh, My mother is from Mosul, Nineveh. Uh, my father's father's Assyrian Church of the East. His mother's from the Chaldean Church. So I have, uh, I'm uh, I'm an equal opportunity uh, church uh, <laughs> member. Uh, so we had, uh, you know, we really had a diverse and inclusive uh, family and friends uh, th- from uh, the Assyrian communities throughout Baghdad and elsewhere, uh, especially in uh, Assyria and northern what is uh, northern Iraq. Uh, so it was. Uh, Great uh, uh, upbringing till the uh, Iran-Iraq war started. And uh, that's when, you know, things really turned uh, backwards for, uh, for the country. Uh, and that's when, you know, quick uh, reactions by almost all our relatives of how do we get our kids out of there to prevent them from going to war, including teenagers and even preteens. I was 12 at the time. So it was wonderful till uh, the Iran-Iraq war started mm-hmm. and things started uh, going downhill. Yeah. Now you talk about being born to diverse parents. In the household, was Assyrian the first language? Was it a multilingual household? How would you describe it? So we, uh, you know, the family was effectively uh, 
when you talk about you know church affiliation, we were effectively Chaldean. We went to the Chaldean church. We were baptized in the Chaldean church. We had our first communion in the Chaldean church. Uh, at home, we spoke Arabic. I did not speak Assyrian at all. Mm. I learned Assyrian when I moved to Canada, actually. My father's family, when we went to visit, they spoke Assyrian. And we picked up a few words here and there, but we, we didn't speak it. We spoke Maslawi, actually. Not, not the uh, typical Iraqi dialect, but the Mosul dialect. Uh, which has some elements of uh, uh, Assyrian, uh, modern and ancient, uh, but effectively it's Arabic. So we kind of followed my mother, who comes from a line of you know very that has been impacted substantially by the Arabization that's been going on for a long time in, in Mosul. But again, uh, we we knew just enough to get away with it when we get into the Assyrian neighborhoods. <laughs> but uh, that was kind of our uh, upbringing. We uh, I started by going to uh, to school in the uh, Catholic school, a part of the Holy Cross uh, Church, where I was baptized, and my friends uh, were diverse again from mostly Assyrians and uh, some uh, Iraqi Arabs as well, but uh, Assyrians from the various churches. Um, we really didn't distinguish or hey, are you what church? That was that was uh, really uh, not even a topic mm-hmm. and. Uh, during uh, uh, the holidays, we went to the churches that were most convenient for us. Uh, I, you know, I never knew till I came to the West. Oh, that church was Chaldean, while this was Church of the East, and this one was the ancient Church of the East. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that wasn't really a topic, to be honest. When we were children, our parents never taught us to differentiate. Yeah. But we spoke Arabic, and uh, and we did have family members that truly felt that they are Christian Arabs. And we, uh, I do recall my father debating with them oftentimes, uh, and that continued in the West, mm-hmm. uh, including my mother, who is Muslawi, who uh, spoke Arabic, did debate. No, our you know, ancient heritage is Assyrian with her family members that some of them were staunchly against that idea. Mm-hmm. So even at an early age, you had this identification via your parents that we are, in fact, an Assyrian family or an Assyrian household, but through... Arabization. This is what we have. Uh, this is where we are now. Absolutely. Is that, is that how you would characterize it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when we visited my father's family, my uncle. I remember Uncle William, who passed away in Turkey during his uh, migration out of our homeland. He had a large portrait of uh, Queen Shamiran, and uh, as children, we looked at it. You know, we, we grew up looking at that and marveling and, and just full of pride mm. in our heritage. So we knew, I mean, there was no question whether it's in school. If anything, we would be shamed. Oh, if you're in Assyrian, how come you don't speak it? Yeah. So, but we knew absolutely 110% that we're Assyrian. You say that your parents uh, are from, originally from Mosul, Nineveh, Nuhadra, Duhuk. Did you ever go back uh, as a child, you know, up north for summer vacation or holidays absolutely absolutely especially to uh nuhadra to duhok um we visited often and we had uh, family there and uh we you know stayed and you know slept over the roofs uh, in the summertime and we went to their farms and uh, uh we enjoyed it it was, it was heaven for us going to uh, nuhadra to duhok uh, uh Mosul less so because in fact uh, most of my mother's family had migrated to Baghdad or other towns at the time. 
Um, several of them also had uh, moved out of the country and to Australia, to the UK. My uncle was uh, teaching. He was a professor in, uh, in, uh, in the UK. So we had uh, less family members left from my mother's side. You say that the uh, you said earlier that the Iran Iraq War was the sort of the impetus of your family migrating out of Iraq. Tell me about those those days. What led to the decision to migrate out, and then kind of where your family migrated to? Yeah, I mean the the road was paved long before the war. Uh, you know the you know every time uh, the Assyrians went through uh, whether it's genocide or massacres or. or any war or uh, issues that happen, whether it's in the north, north of Iraq or elsewhere, some moved out. So the, ro- the road was paved. We, as I mentioned, uh, my uncle was a you know established professor in the UK. My aunt, since the 60s, had moved to Canada. My other aunt had moved to, the, to Detroit, Michigan. Uh, we had relatives in Sweden, even uh, Australia. So the path was there if we needed the Iran-Iraq war and the rumors that they're taking kids. In fact, I, at age 12, was uh, uh, brought into training, you know, early uh, teenager training. We had a military uniform and we did uh, uh, basically mini army training. Uh, And we were all proud we can defend the country. Of course, our parents, this was uh, the red alert. Uh, And uh, very quickly, they start communicating with our family. So first chance they got uh, they uh, put us one by one my elder brother then my uh, my uh, uh, other brother Wissam and then myself send them wherever we can we can get a visa so uh, my brother went to Canada uh, same thing with my other brother uh, Laith and Wissam and then myself I could not get a visa to Canada I went to the UK where my uncle was teaching mm. uh, so I spent a few months in, uh, in the UK and then eventually ended up in Canada and that's really where my the pride uh, and the knowledge about uh, my Assyrian heritage really was nurtured. Uh, the first month I was there, I remember uh, we stayed with my aunt. Her husband, Shmael Yonan, was a big influence on me. And so was his father, uh, Shimon, who was in his late 80s at the time. Uh, now he had experienced uh, the genocide. Mm. Of uh, so he remembers as a uh, child he and this is roughly what year this is uh 82 okay 82 or so and uh i recall i arrived there in the first month my brother's there and we start speaking arabic to each other because that's what we're used to keep in mind arabic was like english here kids speak english because that's what they hear on tv that's what they hear in school so it's the quote-unquote cool language so here I am speaking to my brother in, uh, in Arabic and uh, Shimon, my aunt's father-in-law, pulled me outside, outside the house, outside the fence of their home. And he said, come here. And in very broken Arabic, because he thought I don't understand English, I mean Assyrian, and I didn't much. And he said, do you see this fence of this house? And I said, yes. He said, inside that fence is Assyria. He said, okay. So there's a rule in this Assyria. Once you enter that border, you're not allowed to speak Arabic. Whenever you want to speak to your brother, go outside, speak to him, and come back in. Understand? <laughs> okay. Uh, two months later, I was fluent in Assyrian. <laughs> <laughs> so that was uh, the big uh, first you know, uh, influence that got me to learn the language. 
Um, now, from there, uh, we had really wonderful organizations at the time. Uh, there was one called United Assyrian Youth of Canada that had summer programs, uh, very dedicated individuals that came and picked up the kids, you know, for a couple of hours going to various ends of Toronto, metropolitan Toronto, and pick them up, bring them in. Um, uh, I don't think it was weekly, I think multiple times a week. Uh, to learn to read and write Assyrian. So as a teenager, I learned to read and write Assyrian. And, and really, part of it was also uh, making friends, lasting friendships, and learning about our history and uh, heritage uh, and culture. So it was really a wonderful experience. So my hat's off to all those activists. Uh, I have to give credit, United Assyrian Youth of Canada was established at the time by members of the Assyrian Universal Alliance. There At the time, Assyrian Universal Alliance was the popular political group and international group, so it had a lot of offshoots and United Syrian Youth of Canada's founders, a lot of them were members of the Syrian Universal mm. Alliance. So, but they really did a great job, uh, even, you know, little things like painting and coloring were all, you know, Assyrian Lamassus and God Asher. So as a teenager, it had a lot of influence on you. Growing up beyond that, you know, in university, I was, uh, I took ancient Near East classes uh, under Professor Amir Haraq who's also a Muslawi, uh, and it was, uh, it was a great experience, uh, serendipity, that I went and asked the ancient Near East uh, division, hey, do you have any classes that I can take? I'm in engineering, but can I take these classes because I'm an Assyrian and I love my heritage? They said, oh, we have an Assyrian professor here. I said, no, there's no such thing. I would have known. We know the community. Yeah. Yes, there is. Here's his name, Professor Amir Hara, and I... I had the pleasure of uh, uh, meeting him, and, and that also had a lot of impact on me during uh, university days. But I would say from the activists and nationalists, the, fo the, the people that had the biggest influence were, uh, again, in the spirit of diversity. You know, I come from Iraq. Those that taught me most about nationalism, one is Rabbi Alfred Duman from Iran, and the other is uh, uh, Malfona Ninos Aho from Qamishli, Syria. So uh, really, borders were transparent to me. I did not see those borders. We're Assyrians, and some, somehow I ended up being in what is called Iraq today. Mm. But really, we grew up not making a difference. You know, that, that is not a, an element in our calculations mm -hmm. <laughs> in our everyday life, uh, where you come from uh, based on today's borders. I want you to dive deeper into these two influences because there was a question that I had prepared mm -hmm. in terms of role models. So I don't know if they quite fit role models, these two, but regardless, I still, if you can share a little bit about, you know, uh, Alfred Duman and Nino Saho, you know, how you came about meeting them and what was so influential uh, about them. Yeah, uh, Rabbi Alfred Duman uh, was really... Uh, um, influenced a lot of people in Canada uh, and elsewhere as well. Um, it, it was more structured. You basically hear the books you go, need to go read and tell me what you've learned from them. Some of them are history. Uh, it established that foundation when you read about the contributions that the ancient Assyrians have done. And then even uh, post uh, the collapse of the empire, the contributions, whether it's... Uh, you know, in Ashur or in Ar Arbel or even through religious uh, aspects, 
so it was a lot of fundamentals, I would say. Mm. Uh, but afterwards, there was a lot of, okay, now that you're proud and you love your nation, now what? Let's learn from other nations. And, uh, you know, whether it's uh, reading auto-emancipation or Dr. Hillel's stuff and how uh, our Semitic uh, cousins, uh, the Jews, how they rose up, how they revitalized their language from from effectively death. It was had disappeared and they brought it back to life. Uh, predominantly in Russia, today's Russia, um, was amazing. So a lot of learning there to build up to a dedication that uh, really what is your purpose in life and how you're going to uh, contribute to, uh, to your people and leave a legacy where you left it better than you came into it. Mm. Uh, that was really what, uh, the, and I had the pleasure and honor that I had almost one-on-one -on -one, uh, uh, sessions with him. He took the liberty of reaching out, like, I want to meet with you. So I, it was really an honor to do so. How did he hear about you? How did you come about? Um, he knew, again, from the United Syrian Youth of Canada. He saw that I was active and involved and became on the board. And we did a lot in that uh, organization. Uh, you know, newspapers. We had Ninway newspaper. This is a full newspaper that we were publishing. We, had, we started a radio program. This is a you know, the Toronto, the city of Toronto news uh, um, radio program that was not just given to anyone. I think there were, uh, the Italians had had it and us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was a big deal. Wow. So uh, a lot of athletics, community events, uh, classes. So we did quite a bit. And a lot of the founders were influenced by him. So through interaction with them, he reached out and it was, uh, it was a great experience. That That helped the foundation and I was already very, very involved. Uh, but a visit by uh, Rabbi Ninos Aho and uh, uh, Rabbi Yosef Bet Yosef, they came to Canada and that personal experience, actually they came to our home, uh, was uh, really very influential. We, we grew up listening to their poetry. I remember at the time there were cassette players. <laughs> so, you know, as you listen to something over a cassette, it wears out. The quality becomes worse yeah. and <laughs> worse. It's an analog device. I've must have played that tape. I don't know a thousand times. You know, it. it you could hardly understand the words, but they were uh, embedded mm. <laughs> into our memory. It really made a, a major impact. To see them, they were icons for us um, in Cannes. Not just for me. So many uh, members of the community. So it was really uh, a major impact. And we stayed in contact with uh, Rabbi Yosef Bet Yosef and uh, Menacha Ninos Aho. Uh, we became friends, um, you know, till, till the last days uh, of uh, Rabbi Ninos Aho. Uh, um, we were very close friends. Uh, yeah. what, was the one of the, what was one of the most important things that you learned from Ninos Aho? Ninos Aho I related to also because keep in mind the majority of Eastern Assyrians are from the Church of the East. And while he was from the Syrian Orthodox Church, I was effectively from the Chaldean Church. Um, so I could relate that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't necessarily easy. <laughs> uh, there, was all, there were many instances of challenges by Assyrians from the Church of the East that unfortunately, did not understand what Assyrian nationalism or ethnicity is, 
that we ended up being challenged. Why are you speaking? You're not even yeah. a stranger to the East. Now, that didn't bother us, nor did it shake our faith in our uh, uh, ethnicity or nationalism. That never bothered us. So we actually welcomed it after a while. <laughs> so uh, there was that uh, additional tie that uh, made an influence. But also, Malfondi uh, Nusaha um, was really underappreciated. You know, he was appreciated for his poetry and his sense of nationalism, but he was really a deep thinker and a forward thinker as well. Um, in 2003, actually before, before the uh, American uh, invasion, liberation, whichever you, you, you prefer, of Iraq, when we got early notice that this is going to happen through some of the Assyrian contacts that we had um, in the US and elsewhere, uh, he called a meeting and he didn't include everybody under the sun. He included a few that he felt that could make a difference um, that said the floodgates will open. Um, and if we're not prepared as Assyrians, uh, you know, we will um, go backwards, not forwards. We have to prepare now in the homeland and in the diaspora to to be able to take advantage of this. Uh, he had a theory, uh, as well as Rabbi Alfred Duman, that during stable times, you hold on to your position in the community and in the country and develop slowly. And when there are things that are, when there are big changes, this is the opportunity to strike and take a major step forward and solidify your position. So at that time, um, what one output of that was the Iraq Sustainable Democracy Project. We started this ISDP uh, at the time. Uh, Michael Yuash was, uh, you know, we we uh, we had him come from South Africa. He left his job, and, and uh, we met in New York with Afram Qaumi and a few others like Robert Galeta, uh, Dr. Eden Nabi, uh, Katrine Michael, Al uh, Qushneta, uh, activist still I think in Washington. Uh, Ninos Aho, myself, uh, a few others, John Michael, uh, Pauline Jasson, and uh, established the Iraq Sustainable Democracy Project, where we're effectively, uh, I don't know if the word is uh, most appropriate word, lobbying in, in Washington. Uh, we started uh, you know, working with the, with the folks in the homeland, especially in the Ninua Plains, to strengthen that concept and, and the push for, for a bit more autonomy mm. in the area. Um, we worked with a few activists from the Assyrian Democratic Movement, especially, but also those that were not involved at all from the Syrian Orthodox and Syrian Catholic Church and then in Waplain and the Chaldean Church to establish uh, uh, organizations, civic organizations and then in Waplain to uh, uh, further uh, strengthen our infrastructure. Effectively, do we have the infrastructure to run our areas where we are a majority. Do yeah. we have it? Can we run the traffic? Can we run the education system, the electricity, the, all that infrastructure, uh, but as well as uh, security uh, protection and so on. So that was really, uh, I must say, that was Malfona Ninos Aho's uh, thinking when people were writing declarations and worrying about elections and uh, he was looking forward and what we're going to do yeah. to establish that right foundation. How do you strike while the iron is hot? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So a major influence.
You've lived in different areas with Assyrian communities, both in the homeland and in the diaspora. So, for example, Toronto, San Jose. How have those collective experiences helped you shape an understanding of what it means to be an Assyrian? What have those experiences taught you? Good question. You know, uh, I had the privilege to not only live in uh, different countries, but also visit a lot of countries. So uh, obviously we lived in, in Baghdad, visited North Iraq often, almost every summer as a child. Uh, UK, uh, very short, you know, few months, maybe four or five months before moving to Canada. We used to go to Detroit. Uh, I had my cousins and aunts in, uh, in Detroit, and we used to visit there a lot. A lot. Then we moved to Chicago for five years and, and uh, finally in California. But my uh, work uh, gives me the opportunity to travel a lot to various you know, uh, countries in Europe, whether it's Sweden and Germany and Netherlands and, and the UK. Um, so I, I got to see our communities throughout, throughout the world. Uh, I had the uh, pleasure to do so. Uh, it's really further uh, solidified my my dedication and love for our nation. You know, we have a, a wonderful culture and heritage and diversity that is, to me, it's second to none. It's, it's almost uh, the mosaic or the pieces of the puzzle pieces that fit together. Uh, if you remove any one of them, that whole mosaic of Assyria is just not the same. Mm -hmm. You know, just uh, uh, meeting Western Assyrians and seeing their love and carrying the flags and love for Assyria and uh, and then going um, somewhere else and, and uh, uh, meeting the uh, uh, Catholic Assyrians in France and Sarcel and seeing how dedicated they are and the, the work they've done and how staunch they are, even in the face of when they have headwinds from their church leaders and how they stood uh, in, in front of that. Uh, while that, that continue continuously being challenged, uh, you know, going to Detroit and, and uh, uh, meeting Nineveh band, uh, which is, you know, a majority are uh, uh, were from Al Qush uh, at the time, or even you know, good or bad, you know, the the Assyrian groups that were established, whether you want to call it uh, uh, gangs or, or not, but protecting the Assyrian. Um, Assyrian community uh, was was you know as a child and as a teenager that was a you know really added to my pride, but the the culture the heritage the language uh, really helped me uh, uh, further strengthen my uh, love for the nation. You know things anecdotal that sometimes one element makes a major major impact. I see it even when I speak to young Assyrians today. You know, sometimes one little thing makes a big trigger. It's uh, we have a lot of these jewels in our culture and heritage. You know, when they speak about continuity, and are we really the ancient Assyrians? Are we related to them? And you know, sometimes even one word can make a big difference. You know, talk. I I tell my son, my 11 year old son. You know what we call rainbow? We call Qishtimar and the bow of our Lord. What Lord has a bow? And then you look at uh, Allah Asher. You know, it's, uh, there's so many, there are hundreds of elements like this that really ties us, shows that thousands of year old history and heritage that we have. And uh, we have a, it gives you that uh, pride, but also gives you that sense of responsibility mm -hmm. to strengthen it and to 
nurture it and grow it so our community not com- can only survive these troubled times, but to thrive for the future. You travel internationally for work quite often. What are some memorable Assyrian experiences you've had, whether it was meeting with new Assyrians or visiting Assyrians that, you know, or visiting Assyrian inspired statues and monuments? What has traveling taught you about yourself and about life? Well, one of them probably you wouldn't expect it was in China. (laughs) Uh, I was in China, in Shenzhen, China. This is, uh, you know, basically uh, not not far deep inland. Uh, where certainly there are no Assyrian remnants. It's a, it's a very industrial uh, city. Uh, but we had, uh, I was staying over the weekend, so I had worked till Friday and then started again Monday. So I had the weekend. And in front of my hotel was this uh, park, uh, Windows to the World. And you can see an Eiffel Tower, you can see a pyramid. So it had, you know, the Chinese government has developed this park, Windows to the World, so the Chinese community can go and get an experience and a flavor for all the different aspects of the world without having to travel the world. Mm. A lot of miniatures, but these are huge. So let's go see what, what's, what's this place in front of my hotel. And I had an interpreter with me who's part of our sales organization. And at the gate, very, very large gate, there were these statues, five statues, very large, maybe 20 foot high statues. One of them was obviously a Chinese emperor. Uh, another was Alexander the Great. Anyway, uh, I, I don't, I'm not going to name all of them, but one of them was King Sargon. And this was a 20-foot high statue of uh, King Sargon. And I was astonished and surprised. And, and there are security guards, so people don't jump over the fence. You have to go through and you know, buy a ticket and all yeah. that. And I had to jump over the fence, take a picture beside the statue. <laughs> and uh, the guards were there. And I told my interpreter, can you go ask the guard if it's okay, just jump over this, the fence, just take a picture. So he went and asked him. And he came back and said, the guard said, you must be a Syrian. <laughs> <laughs> and I, so we had a conversation through this interpreter. And he, just a long story short, you're saying, yeah, the, you know, who else would want to take a picture with King Sargon? You must be an Assyrian and, and you know, yeah. and want to take a picture. And, and I asked him, how do you know King Sargon? He said, well, he was, you know, uh, you know, we learn about this in our education system. He was one that an usurper. He became the king. It wasn't through his parents and the whole story of the legendary story of how, how his mother put him in a basket and down the river. Very similar to he. he and this was a. a security guard guard at the gate so it really gave me a major sense of pride of of our culture and heritage so that's one that didn't really involve any assyrians but an ancient assyrian king sargon Mm. (laughs) but certainly sweden and netherlands i've made you know lifelong friends i consider them family whether it's uh, saliba from germany or mate or uh, atia khamri from holland uh, and many others, um, just uh, really, they're part of the family. You've had investments in Assyria. Could you walk us through how that started? Who did you start that with? What benefits have you and the community reaped? And how can others who have this calling follow suit? Yeah, good question. This is a bit of a mixed bag. You know, at one point we had the opportunity, myself with Edessa and others, to give a talk here in San Jose about and this. Edessa being one of the co-hosts or the co-founders That's of the right. Syrian podcast. Edessa, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, I mentioned that the, this is high risk 
uh, investment. This is not for, uh, uh, you know, not necessarily for everybody. It's really, it's not coming because uh, for investment's sake. If it's for investment's sake, go invest uh, in, in more uh, safe, uh, you know, <laughs> go invest in uh, Costco or <laughs> in, in uh, Google. Uh, but this is really uh, an investment, but at the same time, really to help our people. So early on, I think in 2004, um, I went to uh, Assyria um, and uh, in Turkey, basically part of Turkey and also part of Iraq at the time from Diyarbakir. And we drove through the, the whole region and southeast Turkey, that path all the way to uh, Zaho and then down to the Ninua Plains. Uh, that was at the time, uh, you know, things were looking up and and uh, that's when uh, we surveyed where we believe, uh, not only myself, but I wanted to kind of let the communities throughout the world know where we should uh, mm-hmm. strengthen our existence and by also investing. What year was this? 2004. And who, who was with you? Was Were you spearheading the efforts or were there other investors from, from America or Canada with you? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It wasn't just me. Uh, there are a few others mm-hmm. that uh, uh, were part of this. Uh, one of them is Dr. John Michael in, in Chicago. Another is Dr. Robert Karukian out of San Francisco. Uh, myself, uh, we had a partner uh, who was my first cousin. He would, we're, we're lucky because he, was, uh, he actually moved back. He's an Australian citizen moved to the U.S., immigrated to the U.S., he was living here, but he just didn't like Australia, he didn't like the U.S., he wanted to go back. So he said, I can manage it. So we started a company, uh, Atra Corporation, and we invested our money to buy lands, largely in areas where the majority of the inhabitants are Assyrian, uh, in the Ninua Plains. And the lands we, we acquired, or the businesses we acquired, were mostly ones that were either given by the previous regime, the Saddam regime, to Ba'ath members that are non-Assyrian, that are trying to profit, and so they put their land for sale, we would quickly grab it. Um, and uh, some of them were un, you know, house lots that were not built. So it's you'll see 50 homes of Assyrians and a couple of lots that are basically a garbage dump, and they haven't built it. Uh, or, you know, they're uh, just really not taking care mm-hmm. of the, the area. Uh, so they put it up for sale and we would grab it. And we build them, we built homes. Um, the late Bishop Faraj Rahul uh, actually bought one of our properties that we built in Baghdad. Uh, it became the Chaldean center because at, some, at one point, a lot of people were fleeing Baghdad uh, to to the north, and some were going actually to Baghdad, despite the fact that Baghdad was predominantly Syrian Catholic. But they know these are their people. Yeah. They did not differentiate by churches, but the church did not have a major center to welcome them, take care of them. So mm. they bought one of our properties um, that, that proudly had the the Assyrian star in stone uh, <laughs> uh, in the front of it. Um, they purchased that and used it to kind of welcome these uh, uh, internally displaced people. Yeah. Almost like a community center, maybe. Yeah, or to place them, okay. to, to find Intake, a home for them, yeah, yeah. and, and uh, or for a few days that had several uh, rooms. Mm-hmm. That was one example. We bought farmland. Uh, we had a chicken farm. Uh, some of it was a partnership with local Assyrians 
There was one uh, local uh, Syriac, uh, Assyrian in, uh, in uh, Baghdadah, in the south of Baghdadah, closer to Nimrud, actually, the ancient uh, uh, city of Nimrud, who had a tile factory. It's a small, modest tile factory, but he couldn't deliver his tiles that he made there out of the stones from the Nineveh plain because he didn't have a truck. Uh, he didn't have a generator, so he was at the mercy of when electricity is running to make tiles. Mm. So he couldn't really make any commitments on tiles to builders without it. So we would go in, we'd give him some uh, uh, capital, we got, we got a truck, we got uh, a generator, and now the manufacturing was going, was wow. humming again. So things like that really was, was our goal. There was some in, uh, in Kao as well, just to have a place <laughs> as people, we were hoping that as people come in and out and as more Assyrians go in to view the investments and they needed a place to stay and you know, if there are no hotels, we'd have a place uh-huh. as well. Uh, for them. Um, so that was the intention. Uh, we had a grandiose plans of uh, winter farming that was quite lucrative. Turkey and Lebanon was doing it because we had the right environment to do winter farming for f- vegetables for Europe because we can start winter farming a few months earlier and then you can export it. Um, so we did a lot of research and, and work and, and investment. Quite a bit of my savings went into that. Uh, it was a mixed bag, uh, you know, with uh, ISIS coming in, a lot of those properties were destroyed. Mm. Uh, the chicken farm was certainly destroyed. Uh, the well that we had, which was amazing, that's a whole story by itself. Uh, <laughs> because we think we tapped into the waterways of King Sennacherib, because it was not local water from this, Nechbeda, this is Karamles, yeah. yeah. And we did not have to dig deep <laughs> as all the other wells were. That's a long story, uh, which was amazing by itself. But there were a lot of them were de- a lot of them were destroyed. Uh, we did rebuild the farm. We had a farm that was completely dried out, and uh, um, we rebuilt that. That's ongoing. Uh, some of our lands are still there, and uh, we're maintaining them. But there's no major production going on that actually generates income. So yeah. from a investment, certainly it, this has not been a a lucrative investment where I've made money, certainly, right. uh, but the the feeling that I've contributed to people's lives there and there are families that have mm-hmm. made a living running them. And even now, there's a family that runs a farm. You know, the, the outcome, the output of the farm at least pays their salary. Sure. That gives me a sense of uh, satisfaction that I've contributed mm-hmm. in that way. And uh, I wouldn't say it's been a loss. I, we still own these lands. So if we do, if we ever wanted to sell them, uh, our our investment has not um, um, deteriorated. Let me put it that way. Sure. So uh, I just my my hopes were much larger. Unfortunately, right. ISIS hasn't helped, and the current regime is not uh, prone to is not uh, helping. Which regime? The Iraqi regime. And frankly, uh, our representatives, our Assyrian representatives are, uh, I think, uh, unfortunately, are busy with other priorities than to develop that infrastructure. I want to continue on this topic because it's uh, we see organic, this organic interest, whether it's rebuilding homes in Challaq uh, near Berwar in Berwar or uh, we hear talk of, you know, let's rebuild Nala, let's let's try to strike gold with whether it's uh, agriculture, tourism, 
Bachen, from the sesame that they grow. What is advice that you would give to individuals or, or collective groups that want to pursue this idea, kind of a 2.0 of Atra Corporation? First, if we just look at it objectively for a second, and we did a survey, if tomorrow we did a survey, I assure you, there are a lot more Assyrians that have invested in Bitcoin <laughs> than in their own homeland. Uh, Bitcoin is quite, uh, uh, I would say, um, very, um, it's not stable <laughs> investment. Uh, your, your money can be lost in, within an instant, uh, uh, can be decimated. Um, I feel that Assyrians have much higher bar for safety when it comes to investment in the homeland than when they go to Vegas or, or go to Bitcoin or in the stock market. I ask our people, and I hope this interview reaches people to lower that, that bar. Treat it, this is an investment. It's a, it's a feel-good investment. Where else can you make an investment and you're helping your people at the same time? You could just donate to organizations and, you know, and have it go and, and they'll utilize it as they see fit. Or you can direct that if you want to, you know, it's not a donation, it's an investment, number one. So your money is not disappearing, mm -hmm. but also you can really make an impact to people's lives there. Uh, I've been to Nala. It's a beautiful place. It's, it's, to me, it's heaven on earth. I can live there. Um, I can see myself living there. Um, imagine if there are homes there that we can go and spend the summer. You know, sure, there there's uh, absolutely, I'm not blind to the, the attacks by the Turks or the, the PKK that's doing training. I've seen them with my own eyes. I've seen the PKK doing training there. Uh, yes, there's absolutely risk uh, involved. Uh, but that slight chance that you can help a family uh, make a living, you can establish uh, a product that Assyrians worldwide and non-Assyrians can enjoy that you know was made by Assyrians and allows them to survive and thrive is priceless to me. Take a leap of faith and make that investment and go for it. I, uh, I have not uh, been disappointed in anything we've done there, uh, whether it's been destroyed by ISIS or the military airstrikes by the U.S. thinking ISIS are hiding <laughs> in the chicken farms that we had. Nonetheless, I still have that. I can still rebuild it. I, I'm super excited about some of the work that I've seen being done, small uh, chicken farms or tachen or other small things. Uh, they may seem small, but when you aggregate all those investments, uh, it's huge. Right. Now, I do have one pet peeve that I find a lot of Assyrian nationalists kind of gravitate towards areas where there are a lot of Assyrian nationalists already, like Nala, like Baruar, maybe if they push the envelope, then it's Nohadra. <laughs> uh, the majority of our Assyrians are not in Nala. The majority of uh, our infrastructure is not in Nala. Not to discourage doing things in Nala, but right. also cast a wider net. Mm. You'd be surprised what you'll find in the Ninua Plains and Ankawa and Erbil and, and other areas as well. We have many villages dotting the Ninua Plains between Erbil and the Karamles, uh, Baghdeda, uh, um, and Bartallah. Small villages 
about projects there. I, I have seen some projects by Schlama there, uh, and uh, maybe some in the uh, by the Assyrian Aid Society in collaboration with others, which is great. We need to do a lot more. It should be proportional. If 80% of our people are living in the Ninua Plain and uh, Ankawa and, and Nuhadra, we should keep that proportion in mind. Oh yeah. And it's it is not only it's an investment, but it's also strengthening our diversity and inclusion. Assyria will not survive just among the Assyrian nationalists in our own inner circle. We have to have more outreach. Mm. You'll be pleasantly surprised what you'll find. You've had many experiences working with different groups and Assyrian initiatives. What do you see as a pain point in our nation's efforts of building up whether in the homeland or diaspora? What are one or two examples that you've seen work that others can adopt or tweak and implement? Do you mean Assyrian organizations or organizations in general? I would start with Assyrian organizations. I've been working with Assyrian organizations and I continue to do so. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, I respect them and I appreciate all the hard work they're, they're doing. Uh, at an early, you know, since the 90s, uh, we, there was quite a bit of focus on, on, on working and helping the Assyrian Democratic Movement. Um, mainly because they were the the de facto Assyrian organization in Iraq working for the rights of our people. Um, so certainly with the Assyrian Democratic Movement, uh, worked more on, on an academic level with the Takasta Assyrian Democratic Organization in Europe and Syria, um, AUA. Um, so it, all Assyrian organizations that are working for our people are one's worthy of support and uh, and we continue to do that. so the problem i've seen and it's more more of my learning from non-assyrian corporations where i've been working for well over 20 years now is uh, we fail to figure out a formula to scale to grow we continue utilizing our same methodology and rely on one element which is nationalism and love of nation that uh, to to help us grow and that only goes so far you have to build a foundation and develop the grassroots effort and, and really expand and uh, do a lot of outreach and set up the institutions to help you grow and scale we have not done that unfortunately all our organizations whether it's the Assyrian universal alliance Takasta, ADO, ADM, and more recently, Bnei uh, Naharen, uh, uh, Sons of Mesopotamia, they have not been able to grow. They continue to do the same thing and hope that, you know, you build it and they will come. It just doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you set goals and you work towards achieving them and you continue to refine them and grow them further and you need not you need some continuity but you need also new blood we have not done that we continue to do the same old same old and uh, that is something that we have to take a step back uh, do some soul searching and uh, and this is not the leadership it's all members of these organizations say what are we doing here how can we change that and also assess do an assessment you know i i work for a publicly traded company uh, we have a board and we have a lot of shareholders. 
we're effectively all shareholders in these institutions. Mm -hmm. If we see them not growing, not succeeding, we can speak up. Sure. We should speak up. Uh, it's We should not feel guilty about criticizing. It's constructive criticism. And we have to do that. And uh, my experience has been, uh, uh, I have to say, somewhat disappointing. Uh, because uh, I haven't seen the uh, renewal in these organizations. And it's, uh, I'm afraid um, that if they don't, then they will see the same fate of previous political organizations or international organizations that they will not grow. They'll remain and they will help and they'll contribute and my hat's off to them, but it'll, they'll, be, they'll hit that ceiling of what they can do. You have a young son, Tatian. As he grows older, what type of community would you like to see in place so that he may continue to serve in it, be proud of it, and continue to grow it? Yeah, my, my son is 11 years old, Tatian, named after the uh, first century Assyrian uh, philosopher and apologist. Uh, I felt that's a uh, first, I just want to say that I felt that that name should be maintained and, and uh, kind of embedded into our community again. Uh, I know there's a couple of other Tatians in our community, so I'm glad I'm not the only one. He was a philosopher that was proud, a proud Assyrian and well past the empire. Um, you know, it starts at home. Uh, it's my education, my parenting to him to be proud of his culture, to learn his culture and, and language and, uh, and instill in him the responsibility that he, there's a case. We have a case that has yet to be settled, that he has a responsibility to carry that on and take it to new heights, not just him, but with his friends. So first, the education. Second, establish that networking that community that long uh, lifelong friends that are assurance that they can work together towards the betterment of our people so that comes from community organizations uh, community functions you know oftentimes we get involved in Assyrian affairs and we think high level you know let's go to washington and work and, and let's come up with a declaration and buyana you know, something happens and you see a Buyana come out on the internet. I've Statement. done my job. Yeah, yeah. I've done my job. I've written a declaration. We are disappointed with the bombing. And then what? Um, we should be able, we should change the, our mode of operation to work on multi, you know, multi-pronged approach. Do that plus work within your community. Work within your family. You know, instill that, that uh, pride and sense of responsibility into your children establish that network so he has friends you know they they net they play gaming you know kids today they're all on video games well he plays video games but his group are an assyrian group mm -hmm. while they're talking video games they also speak not about games and say how we what are we going to do to get assyria back we've heard assyria will be back in 2050 i didn't tell him this <laughs> my son's saying i heard assyria will be back in 2050 we're going to work towards that apparently Rabininos Ahos, he said, at some point, Sierra will be back in 2050, somehow has made it to the children of today, not through <laughs> me. So, uh, but I feel that I've contributed to his uh, pride and, uh, you know, the little things, sometimes the little things. We go into a ride in Santa Cruz, a roller coaster that's scary. And he's like, I'm scared, Dad. I'm like, you have the line of uh, the heart of a uh, Lamassu. 
you can do it. Yes, that I can do it. You know, even the little things. Yeah. You know, it reminds me when we were in Canada, United Assyrian Youth of Canada, uh, we had a lot of kids programs and every Assyrian New Year, we used to take buses and take the kids to the museum there. Mm. And the museum had a natural history museum, but also had a, an Assyrian tree of life and had some Assyrian replicas from uh, Nineveh and Nimrud and others. So while waiting, because it was a large group, we had maybe 100, maybe 150 kids. Yeah. They put us in the natural history museum section to wait to, to get in. And 150 kids running around, you have to keep them occupied. So I remember myself and a few others, and the, we, we were creating stories for them. And I was in early 20s, maybe 19, 20. So there's a big dinosaur and there's a caveman in front of them. Uh, <laughs> you know, scared of the dinosaur. And they're all afraid looking at the dinosaur, very scary. So it's very scary, right? Yeah. So guess, you know, they, they no longer exist. Mm -hmm. Guess what happened? The Assyrians got rid of them all. And they're like, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's the wrong thing to do. I feel bad. I apologize to all the Assyrian kids. But now that we've grown, um, we're visiting family in Canada last year. And uh, one of our relatives, uh, Ramson, uh, his wife, Dahlia, who's a lawyer now, a successful lawyer, because you know how many years I remember I thought the Assyrians got rid of the dinosaurs <laughs> till in school they taught me otherwise. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry, I apologize. I'm not saying you do that for your kids, folks that are listening to this program, but instill the pride and the culture and the uh, language uh, uh, into your children and uh, you'll be amazed what, you, what they can do. Assyrians living in the diaspora are at the risk of losing their Assyrian identity due to assimilation as it becomes increasingly difficult to maintain one's culture and language if you are second or third generation born and raised in a foreign country. At the current migration rate, we may not have an Assyrian continuity in 50 or 100 years time. As a nation, we are at the risk of becoming extinct. We heard you in the past discussing the importance of keeping our Assyrian communities and towns in the homeland such as Al-Qush, Nahla Valley, Baghdeda, Nuhadra, Arbil, and Ankawa alive, as they are crucial to the continuity of our identity. In your own words, you said that they are like a fountain for this identity and a gift that keeps on giving. For those of us living in the diaspora and wanting to support these communities, can you share some advice or practical steps to follow to help these communities beyond just engaging in some internet or social media activism, which may have little or no impact on improving the state of these communities. Great. Uh, that's, that's correct. Uh, I, I should give credit that, that, uh, that theory of, you know, a fountain, you know, just to explain to, uh, to the listeners, if you look at the population of say al you know, at maximum it's been 5,000, minimum 1,000. 1,000 to 5,000. But you go, I challenge anyone to go to any major city in the US or in Europe or in Australia that, that has a major Assyrian community and you'll find Al Qushnaya there. So Al Qush, while it's been 1,000 to 5,000, has uh, been the source of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands worldwide. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what I mean by fountain. These villages and the birth rate and the sense of uh, language, culture, and heritage that's instilled in those people is very strong. So that's why we really need to 
strengthen those those sources if it's water those are sources of water sure. um, so that's why they're super critical to uh, uh, help them not only survive but thrive we've talked about some of the potential investments and programs we can do uh, some of the organizations like Schlama and Aid Society that do have projects in, in these areas uh, and influence those projects towards those areas. But even on a smaller scale, Nala, you know, you see people from Nala throughout the, the world, even though it's, I don't know, a couple of thousand people, maybe, maybe right. more. So uh, helping them and establish uh, programs that keep people there, uh, not, not uh, just... Uh, for pictures, but really for a livelihood. Um, so definitely, I, I encourage uh, those things. So, you know, investments um, and, um, you know, whether it's schools as well. Uh, it would be a shame, you know, last time I remember I was there in 2016, it's been a while, uh, with, uh, with the uh, uh, Assyrian Aid Society office, I was sitting there and a principal or a director, I'm sorry, director of certain schools came in um, to uh, talk to the, the late director of the Syrian Society. What, uh, we want to close a particular school. Uh, it's in one area of, uh, of where Assyrians live because we, we don't have uh, the money to pay the teachers or we, we have too few students, some because uh, they've gone away and some of the classes at the time were still uh, internally displaced people from Nineveh Plains were still living in the classrooms so we want to close it and it's a shame I mean I felt sad about it and luckily uh, um, the forward thinking um, um, reversed that said no we are not closing it I don't care what we need to do let's shut down some other um, how many buses do we have in, in Ankawa for Arba'illo school? Let's use one of those buses and send it there. Mm. So really main to maintain it. We, you know, we could have easily said, it's a bus. The Assyrian community in Detroit, Michigan, or in Chicago cannot afford a, a bus. Right. Right? Those are simple things that we can do. So helping not only just through donations, influence, direct it. Direct it. I want it for this project or go and invest yourself like you said pachen or other dried goods or or soap like uh, we see all this specialty soaps th right. from far uh, regions in turkey and in china being sold in uh, shops in our own assyrian shops oh yeah it's a shame that we don't have our own stuff our there products yeah uh, i'm i'm proud to go i was in san diego recently and i see there's an alqish brand mm -hmm. of pachen and baklawan and other dried goods that's awesome we should do the same thing with Nala and and, and others, you know, and Telkepe, uh, um, and you name it, Baghdeda. We should keep doing that. Have yeah. multiple brands. Um, so yeah, I I think just uh, instilling that and uh, and continuing to do that and lower the bar of safety in your investment again. <laughs> we heard you in the past discussing your passion for supporting and empowering Assyrian communities and the diaspora through education and job opportunities to achieve a higher status in life. Can you please share some thoughts on how this can be achieved and what are some of the practical steps that we as individuals and a collective can undertake to get us there? Professional development and just uh, 
not necessarily just in academia, but obviously through uh, through job jobs and businesses as well, uh, entrepreneurship as well, uh, are all key for our success. Uh, just like the homeland is the fountain for that brings about people to keep our continuity as a people to keep our culture alive and as as people some of them emigrate and keep our language and culture and heritage alive we need to be that financial and and entrepreneurial fountain Mm -hmm. for our community uh, in the diaspora but also in the homeland Um, there are some very practical steps of helping each other you know especially new college grads land a job for those of us that are professionals, um, helping each other to, to find work, um, partnering with them in, in uh, certain endeavors, uh, helping with scholarships. I, I'm uh, glad to have organizations like the Assyrian Foundation of America that helps Assyrians uh, throughout the world uh, with their academic development, largely in Assyrian studies, but not necessarily. You know, a long time ago, when I used to live in Chicago, I was a member of the Assyrian Academic Society. Um, And we had some folks criticize, oh, it feels like an organization for professionals, you know, to meet. And, you know, it's a, isn't that a bit, uh, you know, pompous or, you know, it's elite uh, to, to do that. And I felt awkward about that because I, throughout my life, I've been working with everybody. I don't, you know, uh, I didn't really feel that way. So it kind of got, took me, uh, I was shocked by that. And I, I felt somewhat apologetic. And I remember one of the members, uh, John Michael said, we need to do even more. <laughs> we're not, even, we should have in, we're not actually, we should have even more, we should have organizations throughout the whole hierarchy. We should have like, and the Syrian professors mm-hmm. <laughs> organize all the professors and academicians should have one and professionals and entrepreneurs. It's okay. It's, it's part of diversity and inclusion. It's not exclusive club. We'll have, you know, we have multiple uh, organizations that allow people of similar likes to be involved. Some um, may not feel um, uh, comfortable in one organization. Oh, there's an Assyrian engineering organization. Mm-hmm. I'm an engineer. Let me go see and how yeah. I can contribute. Have those opportunities. But when you look at it, when you aggregate all these together, you've actually, it's a net positive that you have more diversity and inclusion in those that are active as opposed to passively sit and watch over the internet, what's happening with our nation and, uh, and do a Facebook like. <laughs> That like doesn't buy buy bread doesn't as Assyrians say it doesn't doesn't feed the hungry, right? So uh, basically help each other. Number one, you know, a good example is uh, if you look at the Armenian community how they've helped each other. Um, we can do a lot of that. I know there's a lot of that happening, by mm-hmm. the way, and uh, some of them personally take it on, some of it organizationally. I know the Assyrian organization here, the association here in San Jose, uh, always as they get uh, a note of a, a job from another Assyrian in the, in the uh, Bay Area and technology, they try to send it to all the members and say, hey, there's a job at Adobe or at yeah. Amazon or Google, if you're interested, contact so and so so even those little things make a big difference but also um business uh, i know uh folks like uh nora lacy has uh, 
been uh, quite active in helping Assyrian women to establish businesses. That's a great uh, initiative. I, I wish more can do, do, do those things. Also, especially among Assyrian nationalists, there's this dilemma. Anything I do here in diaspora, is that kind of taking away from helping Assyrians in the homeland? And they feel almost, sometimes they're, uh, they, they feel guilty, like maybe I should only help there and not here. No, we, we should be able to, to scale. We have to be a multi, there needs to be a multi-pronged approach. Right. Keep in mind, there's what, 90%, maybe more of our people are in the diaspora. Mm -hmm. We can't forget about them. We have to work on both. Yeah. So no, no shame in that. We need more of it. There's a definite emphasis on succeeding in one's career in order to be truly effective in assisting one's nation, like you spoke about. Is there any wisdoms and valuable input you have experienced in your successful career that can be applied to our community? My mother has always taught me to be humble and not to, so I don't really like to <laughs> talk about this. Uh, but part of that, part of the, you know, I'm... I'm really appreciative of where uh, the things I've accomplished but part of it is taking it one day at a time and being humble and every gain is, is something that I uh, in my career uh, has been a blessing um, the one thing I would say is not to try to take the short take shortcuts uh, I've seen too many people try to succeed too quickly and try to do everything uh, uh, to find shortcuts and, and it has uh, They've, you know, it it's, hasn't worked out as well long term. So think long term. Uh, think about leaving a legacy for your children and for the next generation, not just I have to prove to myself while, you know, now and I have to get uh, rich and successful in my job tomorrow. Certain things take time and you have to work on those. But slowly but surely, every day should be better than the day before. Uh, that's kind of how I've looked at it. Karma, be positive and uh, supportive and support will come back uh, to you without having to compromise. And this is personally in career or in, in Assyrian affairs. Be kind to your, to your people and help them regardless what uh, community they're from, what mm -hmm. uh, church affiliation, without compromising. Uh, you know, going back to that topic because it's really uh, important to me. You know, we talk about success and on average, we've been quite successful in, uh, in America. It just so happens it's mostly within the Chaldean Assyrian community mm -hmm. in Detroit. I mean, the number of hotels that uh, yeah. our people own is unprecedented in our history. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> the number of businesses, look at the, uh, the, community, the community centers we have there. The country club. Yeah. Uh, club, the, the foundation, the yeah. museum, and, and so on. We've done a lot of good work, but there's still that stigma that, oh, we're different. We're not. We're absolutely not different. I'm, I'm living proof of it mm -hmm. um, uh, and many others. Uh, so uh, I think it is important to continue to, to focus on diversity and inclusion within Assyrian affairs without compromising our Assyrian nationalism. I am a member of the Chaldean church. I'm proud of the Chaldean church, as well as our other Assyrian churches. Uh, but those things are not, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't confuse them. These things are not mutually exclusive. My ethnicity is Assyrian. I'm a, whether any priest or bishop or patriarch likes it or not, uh, 
if those ever become mutually exclusive, I have many churches to choose from yeah. from within my nation that I can go and pray and have a connection with Jesus Christ. But I'm an Assyrian. I was born in Assyrian. I will die in Assyrian, as my late patriarch said so. Earlier, you spoke about the Assyrian Academic Society. And when I think of Assyrian Academic Society, I think of Dr. Edward Odishu. I think of yourself. I think of Dr. John Michael, Robert De Caleta. And, and if I'm missing anyone else, uh, please feel free to mention them. But what, what happened to the, the Assyrian Academic Society? And what is currently the state of affairs for Assyrian academics? Yeah, the Assyrian Academic Society was a wonderful organization, in my opinion. Uh, I, I believe, uh, unless I'm mistaken, but I, what I recall, it was founded by Dr. Edward Odishu, uh, who I have tremendous respect for. Um, Dr. Robert Polisian was also uh, uh, a key uh, member, and uh, you know it had its uh, journal, uh, Assyrian Academic Society, which ended up... Uh, spinning out as Journal of Syrian Academic Studies as a separate uh, entity uh, was great. Uh, we at one point when I moved actually from Chicago to the Bay Area, I started a Bay Area chapter of the Syrian mm. Academic Society. We had a few members, we had a few meetings. Uh, unfortunately, the that organization ceased to exist in Chicago, uh, which is quite unfortunate. It's sad. Uh, the last administration in an effort to expand uh, it almost feels to me uh, on a much 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 smaller scale what happened to the eastern empire it expanded we, we had a bay area chapter we had a new board that was global we had members of the board that are from from europe and from uh, boston and chicago and uh, maybe even australia um, and it just it 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 couldn't uh, they couldn't uh, uh, pursue it. Mm -hmm. Many of them were uh, in academia; they were pursuing their PhD or masters, and uh, you know the volunteerism versus getting your PhD <laughs> dissertation done uh, conflicted with each other. And it just unfortunately, the administration after the one that I, when I was uh, leading it uh, lasted maybe seven or eight months, and they decided to. Um, put a hold on it, stop the organization. Now, the one good uh, outcome of it is some of those board members eventually uh, ended up establishing an Assyrian Studies Association, which is a wonderful organization. I'm an advisor to it um, um, that is uh, active right now. You know, they're uh, they continue to do good work. It's still in its infancies, but I would say that's kind of the Assyrian Academic Society kind of transformed to the new the 2.0, which is the Assyrian Studies Association. Uh, also, many members and participants have gone on to become um, professors or educators in Assyrian Studies. Uh, it has helped uh, lay the foundation in many organizations, academic organizations, and conferences where there's a specific field called Assyrian studies which did not exist in the past that's a in my opinion a major plus that's a one of those steps forward that we have taken that uh, we're quite proud of so you know, for example if you look at the Middle East uh, Studies Association Mesa which is a very large uh, 
academic uh, conference, Assyrian studies is now a field. You can submit a paper and, oh, in what field is it? You'll see in it Assyrian studies. Wow. So establishing that, uh, that was through a lot of uh, efforts at the time by uh, Dr. Sargon Donabed. Um, uh, also contributing to that is uh, Dr. Eden Nabi and Shamir and Maku and several others that we have. I'm really tremendously proud of a lot of the members that were there or students that were helped at the time through the Assyrian Academic Society are now professionals, whether Academic Society or Foundation or others, yeah. we help them that now we have, I mean, I can count, you know, maybe 30, 40, 50 people in academia uh, that are Assyrian and are uh, quite, you know, involved um, um, in their aspects on Assyrian studies. For us, you have supported a reformist Assyrian political movement in Iraq, also known as B'nai Nahrayn or Sons of Mesopotamia. Do you believe they have succeeded in their mission? Is it even attainable in a very corrupt and tribal Iraq? Yeah, that's a good question. I've uh, supported effectively all our Assyrian political movements as far as I've been involved in Assyrian affairs, mm -hmm. You know, whether it's the Assyrian Universal Alliance or Assyrian Democratic Movement, Takasta, uh, the, the true nationalist organizations that are not tied to, let's say, certain governments or, or, or non-Assyrian governments, or right. those that are, I would say, uh, uh, truly free and, and committed to our people. Um, however, I have been sadly uh, disappointed with their success. It's, all their success, including B'nai Nahran, has been uh, li quite limited. Uh, and you already... As we've seen in the past, it's, it feels that the, 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 the story is repeating itself. You do see uh, the sunset on all these organizations. Mm -hmm. They start off well, they get a lot of support from the community, and yet again, we get disappointed by a lack of progress um, uh, among them, including the Inharan. Uh, I do, however, uh, um, feel that they have edge, they have pushed the envelope in the level of sacrifice we take during these times. What, ha what happens often is organizations start and they, they start off strong and oftentimes uh, there's some um, ideals that are founded. For example, let's take the Assyrian Democratic Movement. Amazing organization, had really a major drive in terms of nationalism and unity of our people. And we have, it has given they've sacrificed, we've had members of the Eastern Democratic Movement that gave their lives uh, in pursuit of our rights, that gave us those ideals that we have to live by. But it transformed into, I'm going to work in politics and, and get a seat and work behind closed doors and uh, work with the government. Please, everyone, let us do our political work. And we've lost that uh, zeal to work on our rights so it became kind of stagnant. Uh, uh, our movement in general in, in Iraq and in other countries, Iran and, and Syria and Turkey. Um, and there was a bit of a worry or fear of taking further action. When our lands are expropriated, we should go and demonstrate in front of the government building. Well, no, let's not do that. Maybe someone will get arrested. <laughs> so if, if that's the case, then, you know, basically the level of sacrifice our Assyrian nationalists are willing to take has been lowered substantially. Mm. 
Nenaharan, when they came in, they did take that step. No, we will go demonstrate. And if it puts us on some blacklist or some of us may get arrested, so be it. So that I welcomed. We need more of that. This is something that I've been uh, uh, wanting to see more of. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the typical criticism would be, oh, yeah, why don't you come and do that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the... I am not the representative. If I'm the representative of the assurance, yes, I will t take some steps. And if it causes me to, it puts me in jeopardy, then that's part of the job, mm -hmm. right? So if I, the, our elected officials should go work for our rights. Um, and that's what I w haven't been seeing, whether it's in Iran, uh, our elected officials there or in Iraq, I haven't seen it, whether it's in the Iraqi, uh, uh, government or in the Kurdistan regional government. Right. It just, it's not, the level of sacrifice is just not there. It's not like Sahda Yosef, Hubert Yuhanna. Uh, it's not like the, those in Qamishli when they're, that were imprisoned at the time, Ablahad and others, uh, or certainly not like uh, uh, even in, in 100 years ago or, or more, Fredon al Turai and others. So I have been disappointed in all honesty. I appreciate it and respect that they're trying, but I'm sorry, just the, the, the actions speak louder than words. I'm not seeing the progress that our, our people expect. Um, so, and, and it's not any um, different. Um, you, you pick the political organization and I think the story seems to repeat itself, unfortunately. I am uh, hopeful that renewal comes, whether it's in B'nai Nahran, whether it's in the Syrian Democratic Movement, it's time for the new generation to take uh, charge. I'm hopeful of some of the uh, great people we have uh, there, like Dr. Munayako, uh, that I think she's uh, uh, educated and not afraid to say what's on her mind. Uh, that Can you expand on her, her role and what it is that she does? For the listeners well her role as i understand it is it's more of a kind of a human rights mm -hmm. uh, especially for minorities and it's an independent commission it's not like uh, those assyrian members of the krg that are in the voting version of congress that they have there sure. um, it's it's an independent uh, organization but it does have the ear of the government whether they act on it or not is uh, to be seen yet to be seen but from what i've seen from her actions when they were uh, when the krg started a uh, initiative to rewrite their constitution she was invited as an expert to contribute her contributions were bold they were honest and they were definitely things that have never been said in in the since the creation of kurdistan regional government things like the flag does not represent the mosaic of which, you know, this region, it should have maybe an Assyrian Lamassu on it. Mm -hmm. Assyrian uh, needs to be an official language. Uh, it shouldn't be called Kurdistan, <laughs> even. Those are bold, bold statements that in the past, even when we said it from a diaspora, our Assyrian leaders were cr criticized us, including myself. You know, I was one of the founders of the Assyrian International News Agency, mm -hmm. Aina. I'm no longer part of that. But uh, I'm, I'm proud to, to have uh, been one of the, the, the few that started the International News Agency. When we criticized some uh, Kurdish actions, 
we were not criticized by Kurds, but by our own leaders. Hey, you're you're disrupting our political uh, uh, acrobatics that we're doing here to gain our rights. By doing this, you're throwing a monkey wrench in that. Wow. Well, okay, I, I don't see the progress. So mm-hmm. now, so uh, we need more bold statements by experts in the field. And her statements, I was very impressed by by them because they did not just come from her feeling of nationalism like mine that are kind of uh, regular laymen. Uh, her came from backgrounds in human rights, in law, and she can reference things from United Nations here based on so-and-so. This is why it's not right to not include the Assyrian community in the flag and things like that. So I'm hopeful that she gets a, uh, that having her there and I hope she gets the support. Um, and uh, I'm hopeful that our People do not assess or gauge their support based on family affiliation or political affiliation. Dr. Monayako is not a member of Kurdistan Democratic Party. She's not a member of the Assyrian Democratic Movement. She's not a member of Nehnaharan. She's an independent pr- professional. <laughs> she's a professor and she's an Assyrian nationalist and I hope everyone supports her. She's not the only one. There are a lot of others and we have to that's one thing we can do is influence the direction there by supporting those that do good work for us and not supporting those that are not doing good work for yeah. us. This is one way to be, quote unquote, shareholders. Mm. We have a share in this in our future and we need to take action on that uh, and not just be bystanders in this. What is your view on voting in Iraq? So Assyrians are under... A quota system where there's an X number of seats allocated to Christians. Yeah, we have to keep in mind that the Iraqi political system is uh, is broken, and elections are a bit of a charade. It's it's not a it's uh, it's a bit of a joke in all honesty. Voting or not voting, and uh, the, the the counting of the votes is. Uh, all up in the air. It all depends what who's leading, who's running the show at the time, and if it meets their needs. I don't. Th- I think the the elections, uh, us taking part in the elections, is is good from an optics point of view. They see Assyrians coming out and voting. Uh, we should utilize that to show that we're Assyrians and we're here to vote, mm-hmm. and we should utilize it in the media and in, in PR. Uh, but as far as actual count, yeah, I don't think we should rely on that. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the system is so corrupt um, that I'm not hopeful that the elections will be accurate and based on what the people's needs are. To further complicate things, uh, uh, non-political organizations, frankly, religious organizations, uh, are... Uh, involved when they really shouldn't be uh, and they're influencing even our own uh, voting system can when you they give an be. example well uh, for example my patriarch uh, mar Luis Sacco his recent actions uh, I mean it has been built up for a few years with yeah. his establishment of independent Chaldean organizations I don't know what that means because mm-hmm. to me Chaldean is a is a church affiliation. He's established as a political party and uh, went around the world, a campaign to establish them worldwide in different areas and has 
actively campaigned and supported uh, having Chaldean as a separate entity and just so timely, just before the elections, uh, in order to influence who gets into taking, uh, who, who would get those seats. But ultimately, at the end of the day, who gets a seat in that, in that uh, on the table is still uh, ineffective. As we've seen over the, you know, since 2004, it has been largely ineffective. We have not really made any major steps forward by having a minister there or two ministers there or five representatives or three representatives. Oh, we only had one this time. And four were representatives who are basically puppets of the KDP or the Shiite government or Shiite groups. So I'm not holding my breath that uh, things will change anytime soon, and nor can we influence the entire Iraqi political system. It will have to come on a national level as far as Iraq is concerned. I was hopeful when the Iraqi demonstrations were happening, and I was hoping, you know, uh, almost two years ago now, yeah. well, throughout, in Basra as well, and other provinces as well, that'll bring about change, but unfortunately, it has not uh, yet. But till that changes, I'm not hopeful that we will, the elections will mean anything. We should continue to, to uh, fight for our rights, uh, whether we have a, uh, a position or two or five in the government or not. What do the next 25 years have in store for you? Other than growing old? <laughs> um, well, I, I plan to uh, continue in, in my career to develop it uh, further. And uh, so I could leave a legacy for my son and for my family and for my community, certainly. I would love to see me grow our investments and our work in uh, the Ninua Plain. I'm uh, hopeful as I see things in, in at least in the Tilkepe area uh, with Basim Bellu uh, leading a lot of um, infrastructure development. Um, I'd love to uh, invest there further. And his position there, is he deputy mayor, mayor, or...? Um, I'm I'm not sure of the direct translation, but that region, which is still like a governor, it's a uh, not the governor, not the entire province, okay, but that area, Telkepe mm. district, I believe okay. it's a district, is a Qaba, uh, that he is uh, um, the mayor of that mm. uh, district. Um, I do get almost daily activities of road infrastructure, water, schools that wow. he's developing. Uh, and it's great to have one of our people there. So I'd love to invest further there uh, as I can. Uh, and I hope that uh, the situation there gets better to allow this to, to grow, to be on a few individuals, continue to encourage Assyrian studies in the next 25 years to have it established in more universities. We're looking at Salamanca, Spain with Dr. Ephraim Yildiz, potentially to, to do more there here with... Uh, Nora Lacey, the work that she's doing there, hopefully that can uh, get back on track. There are some issues there, but I'd, I'd like to expand the Assyrian studies where I can uh, on a personal level, but also with institutions. I will continue to shy away from doing things on a personal level, to be honest. We need to invest in our institutions. If you do this something on a personal level, it can grow, but as priorities change in your life, as we've seen with uh, academics, when they have a dissertation to do, uh, they stop doing work. Or mm -hmm. personally, uh, we've had some wonderful things like Zinda magazine. 
Uh, I'd love to see that come back. Uh, but we need to do more things through institutions uh, and not on a personal level because they come and go. Institutions can remain. So further supporting our institutions and strengthening them to help them thrive in the future. What is something unique or special that many people don't know about you? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I guess uh, uh, unique unique is uh, that I haven't seen many people have this. Is my, my, my wife and I both share the same birthday birth date january 25th uh, the same year as well or? no different years but okay. same date uh we have a lot in common you know both left-handed so that's i guess unique is otherwise i'm just handed too no he's not <laughs> <laughs> nor is he an aquarius um uh, i guess that's unique um yeah I'm, uh, otherwise i'm a regular i mean i'm just a regular guy <laughs> uh that uh taking it one day at a time Firas, we have listeners from all over the world. What is one thing that you'd like to leave them with? I guess I'll, I'll use the words of uh, the late uh, Malfono Ninos Aho, what he used to say to his kids and to many of, uh, of his students. Uh, to be an Assyrian, you have to be the best and the first. <laughs> so strive for excellence in everything you do. Good things will happen to you and the people around you. So strive for excellence. We do have it in, in my opinion, in our DNA. Keep doing that and instill the language and culture in your children. Uh, take examples of people like Dr. Sargon Donabed, who's a third generation Assyrian, or uh, her professional name is Kesara, Sarah. 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 Uh, Sarah Thomas, yes. who's a fourth generation Assyrian. Her father, she was born here. Her father was born here. Her grandfather was also born here. And she still speaks our language. She sings our language. She, uh, she's quite involved. So uh, again, strive for excellence and maintain our language, culture, and, and, uh, and heritage. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.